Welcome back to James Bond and Friends. Paul Atkinson here from MI6HQ and the magazine MI6 Confidential. On this special episode, we bring you a snippet from my interview with Mark Edlitz, author of two books about James Bond. In his Lost Adventures of James Bond, Mark recounts the stories behind Bond adventures that were never made, changed dramatically during their production, or are now out of circulation. You can read more of Mark's interview in our recent MI6 Confidential magazine, number 68, which is on sale now from mi6confidential.com. Now, on to the interview. Okay, hey Mark, thanks for joining us. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about primarily your Lost Adventures work, but also give you the opportunity to introduce some of the other work that you've been doing, either around James Bond and some of the other properties. Well, first of all, I'm thrilled to be here and talking to you. Um, uh, my name is Mark Edlitz, as you said. I have written three books and made a documentary. The documentary is called Jedi Junkies, and it's a film about extreme Star Wars fans. And my books are How to Be a Superhero, which looks at actors who have played superheroes for the last seven decades. And that includes people who... Uh, you know, from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And then my two other works, which relevant to these listeners, uh, are uh, The Many Lives of James Bond. And that book is about, it's two things. It's a look at actors who've played James Bond in different iterations on film, radio, cartoons, audiobooks, video games. And it's also a look at how different creators have interpreted or decoded the character of James Bond through different media. And then the last book, which is primarily over here, is The Lost Adventures of James Bond. And that's about forgotten, unproduced, and uh, out of print, aka lost, uh, James Bond stories. No, but that's quite a quite a resume mark you said in the introduction to your lost adventures that you never planned to write two books on bond but how did the first one come about where did your fascination with james bond come about i've been a huge bond and hitchcock fan since i was in middle school i remember writing a report comparing james bond and hitchcock really just because i like those two things and i wanted to talk about them uh, and so when I wrote my first book, How to Be a Superhero, which took 10 years, I mean, I was doing other things, but uh, th- when you do a book that is comprised of interview interviews, uh, one, you are at the mercy of your subjects, and sometimes it takes a while to track down someone, and that book was such a wide subject, actors who play superheroes. You know, you could speak to dozens and dozens and dozens of people and really just scratch the surface. And in the intro essay of that book, I put in James Bond, <laughs> uh, not a superhero. I had a, I, I use an excuse, not all superheroes wear capes. Uh, so I was like, I really want to write about James Bond, even though he doesn't really fit. Uh, and then I realized that I had a a strong desire to write about James Bond. So I started working on my first book, sort of with a topic of James Bond and speaking to artists who interpret him. 
and I spoke to a, a wide range of people from actors, screenwriters, novelists, directors, maybe some com uh, some comic book writers as well. And when I was done with my first draft of that, the book was something like 200,000 words. And a publisher really wants 75 to 100 tops. Just because publishing is so ridiculously expensive and the margins are so small and you don't want to publish a exorbitantly expensive book because it's not fair to the consumer. So I had to cut out a lot of material. And so I needed to, how do you cut out material? You have to refine and refine your premise or your thesis of the book. So anything that wasn't actors who played James Bond in different media and interpreting the character had to go. And so that left a lot on the cutting room floor. And so I was like, well, I'm going to do something with this material. And I kept on writing and researching and expanding the scope to be so that everything fell into lost James Bond material. What I mean, really, what is lost? It it's not lost if I found it. So part of that is sort of tongue in cheek. Uh, you you guys do it right. You call it unseen material, uh, and that that's probably a more fair descriptor. Going with my poor choice of language of lost adventures of James Bond, uh, it it falls into. James Bond stories that are unpublished, uh, James Bond stories that have gotten out of pu publication and stories that have not been made and stories that are not spotlighted. So what does that mean? Now, if you have the, let, let's take the, the, the book, do I do that? It, the, the 003 and a half. It's not lost. You go on eBay, you could find a copy for, you know, 10, 15, 20 bucks. Uh, so it's still there. But it's not continued to be in, in, in publication. It's out of print. Um, and so what stays in and out of print are what we consider, generally speaking, when we talk about and research these. And, you know, similarly, there's so many of these James Bond Jr. books um, that are out of print. You know, there's these, I don't know, six novelizations that are credited to John Vincent, but are John Peel. And then there's also three or four other younger size books uh, also about James. But it's this idea of if it's not in print, if it's not readily available, it sort of falls off in terms of what we consider James Bond. My, I guess my biggest Bond obsession has always been Timothy Dalton's third Bond film. So this also gave me an excuse to really search out as much information as I humanly could about that. But so that was sort of what the thoughts and premise of the book is. And that's, that's a great overview. Thank you. One of the early stories is about um, a spy who loved me sort of script history. And although that's regarded as a success for Cubby and sort of opening a new door for the series, you know, Cubby and Harry part ways. And the grand narrative says that this was the, this was the sort of nice edge of whether or not Bond would continue to be a success in the next era. The script sounds like because they were not working from Fleming material, quite tumultuous, a lot of ideas came and went. And do you think, so my question for you is like, having looked at all of those various writers and histories, did the, did the melting pot and a lot of false starts contribute to the film that we see today and the success we know it was? Or do you think it was really 
quite lucky that they came out with something that was sort of populist and representative of the time. Films are sort of always forged through fire and by the men and women who work on them at that moment, based on the time that they have, the money that they have, and their available resources. And I think that sometimes as film fans, we think that there's a one-to-one correlation between script and movie, which is to say that the writer goes off, writes their script, and then hands it over to the producer. Producer gives it a thumbs up, makes some notes, and then gives it to the director, and off we go. But movie making in general, and Bond filmmaking in particular, is not like that. It's a process of revisions, the group that are in the room. And one of the things that Maybaum, who's one of the most important figures in the cinematic Bond, would say, I think he said this for his 25th anniversary piece in The Hollywood Reporter. He was talking about the the process of writing a Bond movie. And he was talking about everyone contributes. And I think that can be seen as sort of a platitude, but that's not how it works with Bond. It's not a platitude. It's everyone gets to contribute. So it, it's Maybaum, it's the director, it's the producers, it's, you know, it's the production designer. And John Glenn also speaks about this a little bit too, uh, just about how they're all pitching ideas all the time. And then it's up to the writer to take this thought and turn it into a scene. So ultimately, yes, Maybaum needs to sit down with this typewriter and give it some form or, or, or you know, or Christopher Wood or, or whomever. So I, th- I think that is the process. I think that, that kind of, I don't think anyone likes the chaos of it. Uh, you know, John Glenn was talking about octopusy having a screenwriter didn't enjoy showing up at 9am kicking around ideas with Glenn waiting for you know the powers that be to come over and get to work uh, and so he he left the project so you have to be like-minded to survive and thrive and contribute and so that becomes self-select you know John Landis who I spoke to about the spy love me you know there's all these writers who are connected theoretically to the spy who love me including Carrie Bates uh, but it turned out that Carrie Bates was not connected to Spyolami. He actually wrote something that for Moonraker that happened to have some similarities to Spy Who Loved Me, so it got lumped in. But anyway, with John Landis, you know, he he and the original director guy guy Hamlet would sit around and come up with ideas, and then when it became clear that he wasn't going to be part of it, Landis was sort of kicking around for a while, and then decided, I guess I'm gone too. But what I love about Landis is how he, how, and, and a lot of people talk about this, and, and again, this is self selecting, but how welcomed he was. Uh, I, I, I think it's in this, I think I kept it, and I hope I kept it. And Landis told a story about, you know, Cubby poked his head into his office, and Landis made a joke about how cold it was. And then Cubby said, come on. And then they go out and, and, and Cubby buys him a coat. You know, it, it's, it's a very su- sweet, supportive environment where producers want you to succeed. 
Yeah, the, the sense I'm getting is that the maybe the spy love me might have been a little bit more tumultuous than usual, but that out of the ashes of all of those burnt ideas, the film comes and the ideas can come from anyone and anywhere. Right. Rather than say, as you say, a linear approach from like the writer hands it to the producer who hands it to the director who just lenses what the writer intended. No, I remember speaking to Mankiewicz and, and I was younger, so I was uh, less deferential than I would be if I knew a little bit more. Um, I, I was speaking to him as you would speak to a friend as opposed to a very important screenwriter. And I was like, it just seems like two different movies to me, Man with a Golden Gun. It seems like the Scaramanga thing and then the you know the, the other thing. And he's like, yeah, it was. <laughs> it's two different movies, two different writers, two different ideas being being sort of smashed together. And you sort of alluded to the fact that like the idea of what is in print versus out of print or available versus unavailable sort of tells us a little something about, well, I'll use the expression of the powers that be, but I'm going to anyway. Think about what the character is. And I think that's kind of interesting in itself. But to broaden out like some of the ideas that were rejected or some of the ideas that were you know considered but put aside they must tell us something about the risk appetite of Eon Productions and the other people who mm. kind of had the final say on that. What's your impression of of sort of you know that that time of looking over some of the script ideas, some of the ideas that they purchased on spec, and what do you think was sort of like too far for too far for them at the time, and has that changed at all going forward? Keeping keeping with the films for a moment. Uh, I spoke to a few different people about pitched ideas for the movie that didn't go anywhere. You know, Ca- Carrie Bates, a comic book writer who wrote a draft of Superman Five with Christopher Reeve that obviously didn't get made. He had his idea for Moonraker that he pitched um, that they bought that didn't go anywhere. Nicholas Meyer was brought into the Tomorrow Never Dies writer's room and he pitched his idea the villain's plot was essentially a, a test for Bond to see if he was sort of worthy enough to, to to work with the villain. And so everything that Bond did up to the point was to get him in front of the villain. Myers, you know, jo- join me. And that 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 did not. My impression was that that did not go over at all. You know, I was I was I was checking out Colonel Sun again. It it's not that's not the same plot, but at by any means, by any means. But at the end of Colonel Sun, when Colonel Sun, the Kingsley Amos Bond continuation story, brings in Bond, you know, he said all this has been inevitable. All everything that's happened is to, on your adventure was for you to stand in front of me. So that that sort of had echoes of that. Now, obviously, I'm not suggesting that Nicholas Meyer was quoting Colonel Sun. But I'm just saying there is a place in Bond storytelling where theoretically could work. Although I, I think Meyer probably thought that some of the audience members would be fooled into believing that Bond would work for the baddie. I don't necessarily think that anyone would have fallen for that. And then the other thing was the the first, what could have been the first Dalton movie, was the Bond origin story. That was never made. Oh, and then the Richard Smith alternative fourth Dalton movie was the Richard Smith reunion with death. The other thing that you touched on a little bit was sort of the the opportunity to make a, com- a, a, a couple of spin-off movies actually from the James Bond franchise. There was the idea of making a Wayland film and a Jinx film. There was a script and it got 
can't remember was there a director attached but i think there might have been a director attached well so so there was even a third one the the the, the jinx the whalen and then there's the he, he I, i'll shoot i could shoot you from stuttgart uh dr kaufman it won't look like a suicide if you shoot me from over there i am a professor of forensic medicine believe me mr bond i could shoot you from stuttgart and still create the proper effect Dr. Kaufman, and they were even pushing for a, a spinoff with, with with Dr. Kaufman, which I think was my favorite scene was having Bond tied up and with Dr. Kaufman having the drop on him, and how is he going to get out of that? I felt I felt like that scene had a, had a lot of tension, but that's an example that Dr. Kaufman. You could say, well, he doesn't necessarily merit it. That just but the 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 Waylon and and Jinx seem to have real merit. Do you know much more about? Did you look much more into the the history of either of those two almost productions? Which one? I think Jinx got a little bit further along the process, didn't it? Jinx, Jinx, Jinx had a, a full script. The Waylon thing, I think, was just pitch. The expectation was that Bond, Pierce Brosnan, would appear as Bond in a cameo capacity in the. Like that was that that was the studio's hope. That would have been an early sort of Marvel, you know. Oh, here look, Iron Man is showing up in a Spider-Man film, or Captain America is showing up in Thor. That would have been a, a version of that. I guess that speaks to a broader point. It's just like the 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 nature of contracts in Hollywood must have changed dramatically since Marvel started inserting you know, reasonably high ticket actors into other people's films. <laughs> um, but I bet in the nineties, you could never have secured Brosnan for a one seat or like, or, or just attached to his bond contract. Oh, we need you to pop along for one scene. Right. It would, it wouldn't have been attached to it. Would, it would have needed to be a separate ca- contract and it would need to have been um, an attractive offer. Yeah, exactly. Right. And at that time he was sort of negotiating his ability to do different things, a bit like Craig, managed to do all over the way it was like you know he can he can be bond but he can also he also needs to the freedom to do other things so i struggle to to, to imagine even if we got a wayland film that pierce brosnan would have been in it as james bond are there any other characters that just from your personal enjoyment of the films you think would have met would have merited a a spin-off effort no i i don't i i really and and when i say I don't if, if it were on, I, I you know for, for, first in line, I'll, I'll I'll take off work and go to it. I, I, I think that a lot of times these characters work best as they're used, and our desire to see more of them is indicative of that they were used correctly. But I don't necessarily think that any of them should be spun off. The villains, for for instance. But if you were to say, oh, we'll look Jinx film or Wayland film, those seems like they could have worked. Yeah. And I think with as we put out, it was twenty years since Dino of the Day. So if we put a bit of distance between ourselves, when we heard the rumours that they were working on a Jinx screenplay, and the taste of Dino of the Day was in everyone's mouths, I don't know that many people would have said, "Hey, look, yeah, that's a brilliant idea." But you know, as we get older and wiser and more relaxed and more stuff for content, I can imagine. Well, if you just look at Michelle Yeoh, I mean, the way she's continued to show all how dynamic of a performer she is that it feels like a missed opportunity on on her front. I feel like she came to bond and did her thing, right? She brought all of her experience and all of her, her characterization and the fact that she is uh, uh, already an action star to James Bond. Like James Bond didn't make the Waylon character 
she she kind of came right. with <laughs> with those credentials already. So I could easily see that spinoff happening. But then you have to ask, well, why is it a Waylon spinoff and not not you know what's going to make it different from you know Michelle Yeoh's next creative choice? Right, right. Oh, the one thing I'll say to contradict myself: uh, Raymond Benson's book starts with Waylon and has a whole. You know, it begin. I think it's it's how it starts towards the beginning, at least. There's a significant portion of the book dedicated to Wei Lin, and it feels like so. And it's like, oh, this is great. It felt like, oh, this is a fun non-novelization form of of the movie. kind of the pre-title sequence so there, to the, to the yeah. book. Yeah, so so there is a way to do it and 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 add to the character and, and make you want to see more. So obviously, it's all just. I mean, all this is execution. So some, some, a couple of broader questions just to wrap up, and then I'll, I'll, I'll free you from this. So all of the people you've interviewed all like had to get to know the James Bond character from some perspective, right? Even the people who are writing James Bond Junior had to know what rules they can't break. What do you think? A lot of like they must have all had their own take that's similar but subtly different. What did you, what did you take away from? conducting all of these interviews and assembling them into the book and what were some of the more memorable observations people had about who james bond is or the kind of things that you can make james bond do and what you can't potentially make james bond do that's sort of one of the central ideas that i try to explore in in these two books is who is james bond and how do you interpret him and i think i started writing the many lives of james bond with this notion James Bond, as created by Ian Fleming, was a fixed figure. Different artists would bring out different attributes and use them accordingly in whatever movie, video game, or whatever. And I don't think anymore that the artists who interpret him necessarily agree with that. I I think that that's part of the reason why we have... Roger Moore and Sean Connery and Dalton and, and Brosnan and Lazenby and Craig is that there is not one pure form of Bond. That Bond can take these many different forms. And for me, that is the fun of Bond in that you have the serious Dalton as well as the goofiness of Moonraker or James Bond Jr. and that there's all these different, you know, like the the German, excuse me, not German, the Spanish language James Bond comics from Zigzag uh, by uh, German Gabler, G-A-B-L-E-R, where he told straightforward adaptations of all the Bond, all the Fleming novels and short stories. So his Spy Who Loved Me is the Spy Who Loved Me from Fleming's book. It's not the spy who loved me from the Roger Moore film. You know, he does um, For Your Eyes Only short story. He does the, you know, he, he goes through them all. But he also tells these wacky adventures where where Bond is battling yetis. <laughs> yeah. Um, or Bo- Which is my favorite thing ever, Bond battling yetis. Um, and I know it's not the, the, it's not what Fleming had in mind. Just giant um, squid, right? But... Exactly. <laughs> well, Draw the line at giant squid. Uh, but, it, <laughs> but 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 this artist does it with love of the character. It works because it comes from his love of the character. And for me, I think that's fun. I think it's fun to 
take the character in comics in a place that you wouldn't expect. Now, if you have a, a Bond, a movie Bond fighting Yetis, I would probably say, oh, they're not taking it seriously. That's too much like Batman 66. But but he was taking it seriously. He told the – he had fun with it, but he told – you know, he he wasn't poking fun at Bond by doing it. And he had all these crazy stories, this artist. And that's another thing is, uh, um, the, you know, the, there's a lot of these uh, zigzag James Bond comics. But because they're in Spanish language, um, they're not – um, they're not necessarily part of the conversation unless you happen to speak Spanish. And it seems like they maybe weren't particularly well policed in terms of the in terms of the what no, the central he, character. Yeah, he had no he had no um, oversight. Um, is the way he remembers mm-hmm. it is that he you know he would write them and illustrate many and also give them to his colleagues um, to illustrate, but. And they used Sean Connery's likeness. So they're also fun because you see Sean Connery in adventures they associate with Roger Moore, like Sean Connery in, in Moonraker. Of course, of um, course. But in yeah. Fleming's Moonraker <laughs> so, in the south of England. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Right? So you do, do the math on that, <laughs> the mental gymnastics. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think the two stories from the book um, that stood out to me was one of them was his about, say, why he couldn't let Vespa die at the end of Casino Royale. Yeah, I mean, he just made he made that's one of the most important decisions <laughs> that Fleming made in writing Casino Royale to have Vesper die at the end, and he's like, "Nope, <laughs> I liked them too much. <laughs> I had too live. much faith in their relationship." <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, of course you did. Okay, let's go with that. Yeah, and the other, the other one for completeness was, I think it was you. You started to tell it around the cubby getting a coat for. Oh gosh, the filmmaker's name Landis John Landis, Landis. Um, and the the bit that you didn't mention earlier was I think you he describes it as saying I had I'm disappointed I haven't met the Queen, so Cubby takes him yes. out, buys him a coat, <laughs> takes him to meet the Queen. <laughs> yes, 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 yeah, he, yeah. He's like we're not gonna. He, I know Eon gets a lot of flack but i i think that just shows you how much they care and support about the artists that they choose to work with i think that kind of that's been a really good survey of some of the things that you've discovered and some of the process that you've gone through so thank you for your time and wrap up by pulling your trick on you and asking you is there anything i should have uh, asked you did, did i write that in, yeah, in the did. book that i would ask people yeah yeah because that is apparently how you found out about um the treatment for a game called bond all in capitals you asked oh one of that's the, right oh i one of the james bond jr folk it seemed to be like a tactical yeah it was a tactical video game that that third person that i think that was it intended to go through every movie up to that ah point. so like a level per per movie one one for yeah. each of the 16 yeah. or whatever. 17. Yeah. That would have been fun. Yeah. <laughs> and said so we got um, 007 Legend. You know, I, see, to me, I, I know I'm in the minority. But, I mean, that's part of the fun is to have Daniel Craig in a Bond movie not from his era. Um, I think that's what, you know, what would it be like if, you know, Daniel Craig were in Goldfinger? What if, if you know, Majesty's Secret Service, et cetera? Um, and that, I also think that's what's fun about those, that Daniel Craig beer commercial that was the chase 
where he's in a Roger Moore style Bond romp. It's that's what's fun, I think, about what you can do when you're not making a Bond film and you have a little opportunity to play with something to insert. I mean, it's literally a throwaway line for myself. And I think maybe in defense of my throwaway line, it comes down to execution. The The idea may be really solid or the idea may have a lot of merit, but the execution or your ability to, to realize the idea is somewhat different. Like the important thing about a James Bond game as distinct from a James Bond film is the gameplay, not right, the concept right. or the story or the locations or the villain, right? It's about whether you get the experience of feeling like you're being James Bond or not. And I, I think, you know, that game, correct me if I'm wrong, got a lot of criticism, not just for the the, the yes. anachronisms, but for the, <laughs> the the fact that it was a rushed output to hit a deadline and not, it's not something more creative. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, ab- I'm absolutely in the minority by, by enjoying it. Thanks to Mark Edlitz, whose work you can find at many good bookstores, and you can read more of our conversation in issue 68 of MI6 Confidential magazine. James Bond and Friends will return. <laughs>